We're going to be in Ephesians 1, the second part of this chapter this morning. It's a wonderful chapter. I wish we could just hang out in Ephesians 1, but we need to move on. But uh, we're going to finish up the chapter today. In verse 15, it says, for this reason, Paul says. So what he's indicating to us is there's something that came before. And the something that came before was our message last week. All of the spiritual blessings we have in Christ Jesus, verses 3 through 14. It was that beautiful sentence of 203 words that Paul gives us expressing what we have in Christ through God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Through God the Father, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. We are chosen in him before the foundation of the world, verse 4. We are predestined to adoption as his children. We're brought into his family. Isn't that amazing? We talked last week about those huge theological concepts, predestination, election, that scare people away, but they really don't need to because they deal with God's sovereignty and they're based upon his foreknowledge. They're based upon the fact that he loved us beforehand. That's what they're based upon. So there's God the Father, His work in it, and then God the Son. He redeemed us through His blood. He forgave us of our sins, and He brought us into this incredible inheritance that we can enjoy as part of the family of God. That's what God the Son did for us. And then the last two verses there in that specific section speak of the Holy Spirit. We're sealed in Him. We are secure in him, and he is our deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. He is a down payment that has already been given on our behalf. He is like, we talked about this last week, he's like this engagement ring that we have. We're betrothed to him, to our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all these blessings that we have, that was last week. This week, it's like Paul breaks into this great doxology of thanksgiving for the believers there in Ephesus and this incredibly powerful prayer that we're going to see in these verses. So Paul's prayer is essentially a request that all that he spoke of in the blessings would be understood and accepted and put to use in their lives. He doesn't need to pray for more blessings because we have all of them. What, he, what we have is already there, but he's praying that the Ephesians would have a greater understanding and application of these blessings into their life. William Randolph Hearst was a great newspaper publisher and a great businessman who owned millions of dollars. And there's this story at once read of an extremely valuable piece of art that he for some reason, read about and saw and really desired it. He decided he must add it to his extensive collection. So he instructed his agent to scour the galleries of the world to find the masterpiece that he was determined to have, whatever the cost, didn't matter. After many months of painstaking search, the agent reported that the piece already belonged to Mr. Hurst and had been stored in one of his warehouses for many years. He already had it. It was there, but it was sitting out 
in this warehouse collecting dust. And I think as Christians sometimes, we have all these things, all these blessings in Christ. But for whatever reason, it's like we put them into a warehouse and they collect dust. Let's not do that. My prayer, and I think as we read through this wonderful book of Ephesians, and the overall theme of the book of Ephesians is equipping God's family for Christian living. That's what we want. So let's be equipped to live out the reality of who we are in Christ. That's really what we're after this morning. So I want to read the first two verses, verses 15 and 16. This is Paul's thanksgiving for the people there in Ephesus, to the saints there. Verse 15 and 16, he says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped, I have not ceased giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He says, I've heard, I've heard about you. Now, what's interesting, and I mentioned this a couple weeks back, this letter to Ephesians in the early manuscripts, those two words, in Ephesus, are not there. And so some Bible scholars believe that this was a circular letter that went to Ephesus, started there, because it was the major city in that particular region, but it went around to different churches and was read in several of the churches in that area. And it would have been the same group of churches that we read about in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. Um, those churches, Ephesus, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Laodicea, etc., those churches. So this idea of hearing about it. Paul was four years removed from his time at Ephesus. He was in prison when he's writing this book. So he knew them. He had done more than heard about these things. He knew them as people. But there were some of the churches where maybe just news had come to him about these stories. And he'd heard about two things, faith and love. Those are really the two hallmarks of Christian, aren't they? Faith and love. There's the vertical dimension, our relationship with God that comes through faith, and then there's the love. There's the horizontal aspect of our Christian relationship. The two need to be connected. You can't separate the two. Jesus told his disciples in John 13, he says, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You need to be my disciple. You need to have faith. You need to follow me. But evidence of that is that you love one another. We, when Christmas rolls around, or excuse me, Easter, some churches, and we speak of this Monday, Thursday. It is the Thursday. It's the day before Jesus was on the cross. Monday. It's a Latin term for mandate. And it's based upon the idea that Jesus gave his disciples a new mandate, a new command. And this is it. Love one another. And he washed their feet as a symbol of it. And so some churches recognize Monday, Thursday. It's this idea of wash, feet washing and expressing love and highlighting the love that we're to have for each other. So Paul says, I'm thankful for your faith in the Lord Jesus. That's the seed. That's where it all starts. And I love what he says here, Lord Jesus. 
The New Testament doesn't separate those two. Jesus is Lord. He is God, fully God, fully deity. He is fully sovereign. He is overall. He is to be worshipped. He is to be followed. He is to be obeyed. He is Lord, but he is Jesus. He's human. He came to earth. He took our sins. He went to the cross as our representative. Fully God, fully man. Lord Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful term? Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's faith right there, isn't it? It's a belief in who Jesus is. He's Lord and he's Jesus. He's our Savior who takes our sin. So there's this faith, this beautiful faith that starts it out, but he says it needs evidence. So he says, I've heard stories about your love, which you have for all believers. That is the fruit of this faith. Now I want to point out a couple things about this love. He says, first of all, it's for all believers. We don't get to pick and choose which brothers and sisters in Christ we love, right? It's all believers. Granted this, some are easier to love than others. Is this true? Some are much easier, but the reality is we are to love all. Doesn't matter, right? The second thing is, we, I, and even I've been guilty of saying this sometimes, I love this person in the Lord. Basically, kind of what I'm saying there is, I'm loving this person because I have to. They're part of the family. They're in the Lord, do you get it? That's not really what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about a love that is authentic. He's talking about a love that is sacrificial, and that is the heart of Christian love. In 1 John 3, 16 to 18, it says, this is how we know what love is. Let me give you a definition, John says. Christ laid down his life for us. Guess what? We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's that sacrificial part. If anyone has material possessions, sees a brother or sister in need, has, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us love not with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. That's love, isn't it? Sacrificial, authentic, based on truth. That's the kind of love that we're to have for each other. Now, the cool thing is, I've heard about your love here at CBC. Your love is alive and well. And I wanted to point out, before I cruise over that, there's a sad note, and I wanted to read this. In the book of Revelation, when John addresses the church at Ephesus, they're the first one addressed. It would have been that circular group of churches. In Revelation 2, verses 2 to 4, their love had gotten cold. Here's what it says. I know your deeds, I know your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you found them false. You've persevered. You've endured hardships for my name. You've not grown weary. There's so many good things about you, Ephesus. But then he says this, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Ouch. The love there that he's speaking of is your love for me. Your first love, me, you've forsaken that. Now, this would have been written about 30 years, give or take, 
from the writing of Ephesians to the writing of the book of Revelation. And in that period of time, things have happened in their love for him. But the good news is, love is alive and well here at CBC. And I wanted to mention some things that I've heard about you. So I, I gave this question at my staff meeting on Tuesday. And I said to them, what have you heard? What, what do you see in our people at CBC that say they love each other? And these were the things that they said, and I recorded them. Number one is the meal ministry that we have here at CBC. When someone's sick, you can go online and provide a meal. It's this beautiful, ongoing ministry of love. And there's just certain people that just do that regularly, and then other people that join in every now and then and just take a meal to someone. That's beautiful expression of love. The other thing that they mentioned was a wood ministry. Hmm? Providing firewood for those that are widows or elderly that can't go out and, and get wood themselves. There are two men that take it upon themselves to do this sort of a thing. Uh, Mike Bridges and Jim Stair are two guys that just do that. It's an expression of love, and I love that. The other thing that they mentioned was cards and notes that just go out to people. Loss of a loved one, going through a difficult time. Notes just go out from our church to other people. And it's just this beautiful thing. So I've heard of your love, but as a pastor, I've seen you guys. I've seen your love, and I just wanted to list some things that I've seen in your lives. First thing that comes to mind is at our men's roundup event on the 19th, we had three men that just came, and they were visitors. They wanted to be a part of the event. And what I saw was our CBC men just kind of wrapping our arms around them, welcoming them in, making them feel a part of the group. It was a beautiful thing. And by the end of the evening, it was like they were just part of our men's ministry here at CBC. That's love, living out. Baby shower last Sunday in my backyard. From two to four, there was a group of ladies celebrating Heather and Lila, little baby Lila, together. And I saw the giving of gifts and just the words of appreciation and love being shared in my backyard. Out in our parking lot after the service last Sunday, Sheldon and his team of youth and other adults serving food to our people as we drove through and just kind of hung out out here in our parking lot. But what was special about that event was as time went on, a mom and three kids biked onto our property, and they were kind of biking around, and then they saw us over there with all of the barbecue and everything going on. They wondered what was going on, and, and I saw Sheldon and the others just saying, hey, come on over. You know, we've got hamburgers, we've got hot dogs, we've got potato salad for y'all. They welcomed them in. And we got to sit and talk to them, get to know them. They just live here in the neighborhood. They just happen to be biking through. Next thing you know, they have a hamburger and hot dog and some wonderful potato salad with us and some cookies. It was great. That was love. But as the event was going on out here, I saw Bonnie Watson with a sack of to-go containers, and probably, I don't know, four or five of them. And I asked her, where are you going, Bonnie, with those containers? And she said, there's a family that really, with the wildfire and other things going on in their life, they just need some food. So I'm going to take this food from here out to them, and I'm going to drive it out. And I thought, that's love, caring, showing love. Then there's a group of ladies. Every Friday, I walked in accidentally on this group last Friday morning. They were meeting downstairs. I heard a noise, so I opened the door in the family room, and there's this group of ladies down there causing trouble. No, they weren't causing trouble. They were heart connections. It's a group of ladies, and their whole thing is about 
expressing care and concern for our, the ladies of our church. And they meet together to plan it out and to do that. So I've heard about your love. I've seen your love that you have for each other. And, I, and it, it's just amazing. It inspires me. Verse 16, Paul says, I can't stop giving thanks about you. I'm so grateful for you in what I see in your faith and your love. But he says, I remember you in my prayers. I want to pray for you. So verses 17 to 23, we're going to have Paul's prayer for the saints. Now, as your pastor, I think about, I I asked myself the question this week, what things should I, as your pastor, be praying for you about? And what I came to the conclusion was, oftentimes my prayers are guided by our prayer sheet, which is fine, it's it's helpful. I, I hear when you're sick. I hear maybe when you lose your job. I hear when maybe there's some family struggles going on. And I pray for you. I lift you up. And that's good. But I think there's so much more that I could be praying for you that go beyond that, that go deeper than that. And there's four things that we're going to see in this passage that Paul wants to pray for these people about. And so I just want to read verses 17 to 23. See if you can pick out the four things. He says in verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet, appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Four requests here that Paul gives. His first request in verse 17 is that they would know God. I think that's a good place to start out. Spurgeon says, philosophy tells us, know thyself. The gospel tells us, know thy God. You see the difference? There's nothing wrong with knowing yourself, by the way. I think it's good to study philosophy, good to study psychology, to help us understand who us, how we think, how other people think, how to get along. Those can be helpful, but in reality, what I really need to learn is theology. I need to learn God, what he thinks of me, who he is, how he acts, and things like that. The reality is we're all theologians. We just don't think of ourselves maybe in that way. We all have ideas about God, and they direct the way that we live, don't they? The way that we think, our actions. The most important thoughts we think are those about God. If there was a required reading here at CBC, one of the books I would put on that list is Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Maybe you have it in your library, maybe you've heard of this book, but J.I. Packer says, for what higher, more exalted, more compelling goal can there be than to know God? There it is. My heart's desire, my prayer for you is that you could know God, 
for who he really is. So how do we come to know God? It tells us here in this passage, it says that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. It comes through the Holy Spirit. He is the one who reveals things to us. He is the one who gives us wisdom, insight, how to live. He illuminates God's word. When we read it, it's the Holy Spirit. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to help us understand what God has revealed, his revelation to us. The Holy Spirit is the one who helps us to understand who God is. John 17, 3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What he's speaking of there is what we call saving knowledge of God. My prayer is that all of you would come to a, first of all, saving knowledge of God through Jesus Christ, understanding him as your Lord. Because without that, the rest doesn't matter. It starts there, a saving knowledge. But then as you are saved and you begin to grow, there's this idea that this growing knowledge, this sanctifying knowledge, that as we grow in our faith and understanding of who God is, we, we grow. That's part of it too. In 1 Corinthians 2, 11 and 12, it says, For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? True. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but it's the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. The Holy Spirit helps us understand who God is, and then he helps us understand what God has given us. And the next three of the four requests are things that, have been, that God has given us, that God has blessed us with. He speaks of God's calling, his inheritance, and God's power. Three things about God. So let's start with, in verse 18, the hope of his calling. Hope is a beautiful word to us as believers, isn't it? It's not a I hope so uncertainty. It's I know so. It's a certainty word based upon faith and what we know to be true. But it's a future word. That's why it's hope. It's now, but it's not yet. There's still things that are out there that I have to trust God for that are coming in the future. So it's a word that deals with future, but it's a certainty word. The hope of his calling. This speaks of our identity in Christ. We are no afterthought in God's mind. And I hope that last week you saw that. He chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Just think about that for a little bit. You are more than just a passing thought of God. He thought about you. He chose you before this world was even created in eternity past. That is an incredibly powerful verse, but it speaks of our calling, who we are in Christ. Our lives are anchored in eternity past. We have the hope and the, of future reality with him, and we can live in the present confidently because we know both are true. 
I'm chosen in the, before the foundation of the world. I will spend all eternity with my God. Guess what? I can live here confidently. He who began a good work in you is going to bring it about to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. It's God's work. Trust him. He's going to finish it. So what is his work? It didn't end at salvation. Yeah, that's great, but that's just the start. Here's his work, Romans 8.30. It says, those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Wow. He predestined me, he called me, he justified me. I am right, I am perfect in his sight. And then I will be glorified. That's a future hope that I have. There it is. That's my calling. That's who I am as a believer. Only when we know who we are can we live like who we really are. That's, again, our calling. Calling refers to who we are, but it also refers to who we are as believers, as a community. We are the church. We are ecclesia. We are the called out assembly. That's what that word means. Church, ecclesia. Together, we are called out and we come together in assembly. There it is. That's our calling as a whole here at Clackamas Bible. Paul says, I want you to know God. I want you to know the hope of your calling. And I want you to know the riches of the inheritance in verse 18 that you have in Christ Jesus. Wow, riches of this inheritance. Now there's two views here and the wording is a little bit confusing maybe. There's two views. Is it speaking about the fact that we are God's inheritance? That's one view. Or is it talking about the inheritance that we have in him? Both are true. Now, we know in the Old Testament, for example, in Malachi and the book of Deuteronomy, Israel was spoken of as God's treasure, as his possession. And the same thing is true of us New Testament believers. We are God's possession. But I believe it's speaking about the inheritance that we have in God simply because that's the context of the passage. We saw last week that in verse 11, that we are brought into this inheritance in Christ, verse 11, and then the Spirit seals. He is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance in God. These are the wonderful things we have, the riches of his inheritance in our lives. So I want you to know God. I want you to understand who you are, the reality of your calling. I want you to understand how much you have. You are rich beyond your wildest dreams because of what you have in Christ, your inheritance. And then I want you to know about his power. From verse 19 on, it speaks of the power of God in our lives and in our church. There never needs to be a power shortage in the Christian life. We experience those here, don't we? Often. You're sitting at home, all of a sudden, blink, everything's off, you're in the dark. That should never happen in a Christian life. Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, right? When does the Holy Spirit come upon you as believers? The moment you believe. He's there. He's a part of your life. 
He gives you this power. And in verse 19, Paul is going to use four Greek words to talk. He's so excited about this power, he describes it with four different Greek words, and they get translated in our translations differently. But here they are. The first one is translated power in the NIV there. The first mention of power, dunamis. It's the word from which we get our word dynamite or dynamo. This is this is this is blastfully powerful. This is like dynamite in our lives. We are a dynamo in God. That's a beautiful word. Then he says the second power word there is this idea of energia. It's this energy. This is God's working in my life. I love Romans 8:28 and you probably do too. But I love how the NIV specifically translates that. Let me give you the exact what it says. It says, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Instead of, and, the, and again, the King James is great, but it says, and some of the other translations, God causes all things to work together for good. It's kind of this idea that things are just kind of happening out there, and by God's grace, they happen to become good. No, it's God working. He gets all the credit, all the glory. God is working in our lives even in the difficult times. It's this energia, it's that word. The third word that he uses there is kratos. It's this idea of dominion, authority. It's mighty. It's that mighty strength. Wow, it's from God. It, it's above all, it's, it's based on his authority and his power. And then the word strength is iskus. It's this idea that is endowed upon us by God. It's given to us. It's a beautiful word. So it's like Paul says, I want you to know his power. I'm going to describe it to you in four different, I'm going to use four different words to tell you about God's power. That's how amazing this really is. But I'm going to tell you how you see God's power. And he gives two examples from the life of Jesus. God demonstrated his power through two things, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the ascension when Jesus was ascended to heaven at the right hand of God. The death of Christ on the cross was the supreme demonstration of, of God's love for us. When he went to the cross, that was God's love. But when he rose from the dead, that was God's power. That was the supreme demonstration of God's power. In the Old Testament, the way that they would think about God's power was creation, where it all started. The, God created this whole universe just by speaking it into existence. And then the way that God would act in his miracles and his mighty works, parting the Red Sea so that the people could go through on dry land. You want to see God's power? Look at creation. Look at his works. But in the New Testament, the authors in the New Testament point to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We saw that in the book of Acts. If you want to see God's power, look at the resurrection. God raised Jesus back to life from the dead. That is a powerful thing. But here's the truth. That same power is available to you and me today. That same resurrection power. Not just when I die, I will be resurrected, and that is true. But the same resurrection power that raised him from the dead is available in my life right now. This same power that raised Christ is available to raise an addict from his addiction. 
it's able to raise a hypocrite from his hypocrisy. And we're going to see next week, it's able to raise a dead sinner to new life in Jesus Christ. It's able to raise someone who sunk deep into the depression to joy. It's able to raise someone who is struggling with a marriage that seems hopeless into a relationship that is strong and that glorifies God. That's the kind of resurrection power that's available to you and me today. But it didn't end there, and the story of Jesus didn't end there. The book of Acts tells us that he was ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high so that his name is above every name. We sang about that. There's nobody that is more powerful. The ascension of Christ was the supreme demonstration of victory, of authority, of God in our lives. We have victory over every enemy, death, sin, Satan, his dominion, anything we come up against. The ascension says there's victory over that. All authority has been given to me, Jesus says. Therefore, here's what I want you to do. Go make disciples of all nations because all authority is given me. There's a great theologian, Dutch theologian, named Abraham Kuyper, and here's what he says. He says, There is not a square inch of the world that Christ does not claim with the words, This is mine. This is mine. All authority on heaven and on earth is his. That's the kind of power we have as believers in our lives. But then it goes on in verse 22 and 23, speaks of the church. It says this idea that God placed all things under his feet, appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We are saints. We saw that in verse 1 of chapter 1. God's holy people were saints. Then, Last week, we saw the word, this idea where his family were brought into his family as our father. We are heirs of all that belongs to him as his family. And today, we see this idea that we are the church, the body of Christ Jesus. It's interesting that Paul is the only one who uses the metaphor of body of Christ, of, the, of all the writers to him, it was something, there was significance here. And I, he points out a couple things. We have the headship of Christ. We have the fullness of Christ as the church. Christ is our authority over the church. That's what it means. He is our head. But it means more than that. It means that he directs the church just like the head directs the body. My head says, I need to go there. It directs the body to go there. That's the way it works with Christ. He directs us. He gives us the energy. He causes us to function. But there's more than that. There's this living connection. It isn't just the head's over here, the body's over here, but there's this beautiful living connection between the two, between us as his body and him as our head. There's a living connection. And we are the living manifestation of Christ on earth. We are his visible representation. We are his body. People can see us. We represent him. Those are the things that it's talking about, but he is our head. He is over 
all things. He is our authority. And then there's the filling of Christ. He fills us. The church is the community which Christ indwells, fills it up with his presence, his grace, and he transforms our lives to look like him. We're full of him. He fills us up. I want you to hear today, and I want you to know this. We are wealthy people in Christ Jesus. It's grace which supplies that wealth. It starts there. By grace are ye saved through faith. It's only on the basis of God's grace that we are wealthy. Because of his loving kindness, because of his grace. Nothing I did to earn it or deserve it for sure. But I appropriate it through faith. And it's that faith that lays hold of the wealth. Not just when I came to know Christ, but now as I'm living life. So here's a question as we prepare for communion this morning. I want to ask you this question. Which of these four requests that Paul lays out, which of these four things that he's praying for would you need most today? Number one, to know God more. Maybe that's something that you're asking God for right now. God, I would just love to know you more. Number two, to understand the hope of our calling in Christ Jesus. I could just understand a little more of who I am and what, the, what that means and the hope that's associated with that calling as a believer. Number three, to appreciate the riches that we have in him. Maybe I'm just taking it for granted. I have all these incredible blessings, but I'm just living life like I have nothing. Maybe today I need to see the inheritance for what it really is. Or to realize the power that you have in Christ Jesus. Maybe I'm a little timid. Maybe I'm a little afraid. Maybe I'm just, I just don't have the courage really to speak the gospel to my neighbor. I need to understand the power that I have in Christ Jesus. You know, the phrase earlier in the passage, it says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That's my prayer for you today. There's a beautiful story, there's a beautiful miracle in Mark chapter 8. Jesus meets this blind man, and it says he goes up to the blind man and he touches him, as he often did, and then it says he spit and touched his eye. Gross, okay? Gross. But it just shows that loving care. So he regained sight, and then Jesus asked him a question. He said, what do you see? He asked the man, what do you see? And the man said, I see trees like men walking around. It's like a scene from Lord of the Rings here. I'm seeing these trees walking around. Hmm. So what does Jesus do? Does he leave him there? He doesn't. So one more time, Jesus reaches out, heals his eyes, and he sees clearly. There it is. Through faith in Jesus Christ, our eyes have been opened to our need of a Savior. All Christians, we know him. We've come into relationship with him. But I really believe sometimes we have that blurry vision. We have a vague concept. We're seeing like trees walking around like men. And we need... Jesus, to give us that clear vision. 
the Holy Spirit to work on our lives in such a way that we would see things more clearly. How many times you've been reading scripture, a passage you've probably read a hundred times, and all of a sudden you see it for what it really is, or there's a new application to that verse. That's God's ministry in your life, just like he healed the man twice, giving him clear vision. That's what God can do for you and me. So as Phil comes this morning to lead us in communion, I just want you to think about which of those four things do I desire God to do in my life. Amen.